I've talked to you about the Christian armor, which is the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and feet prepared by the gospel of peace and taking up the shield of faith and put on the helmet of the hope of your salvation. And the last piece is the sword of the Spirit. I've been going through this for about 12 weeks, but I recently saw a video that communicated something better in 45 seconds than I have done in 12 weeks. So I want you to see this. This is a, a kindergarten uh, presentation from our school here, Palmetto Christian Academy. And this just thrilled my soul. So watch this. So today I'm going to talk to you about how to stand against the evil one and to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, and it's, that, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, so we do come to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And think about three introductory comments out of Ephesians 6, and then we're going to go to James chapter 1 about how to take up the the scripture, that the sword of the spirit makes every other piece of the armor operative, functional, and glowing. See, we live with the belt of truth in the area of truth as we study the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We, we put on the breastplate of righteousness and we rejoice in all that Christ has done for us as we are reminded, continue, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and of death. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so we, we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace as we remember that Jesus is our peace, who on the cross made both groups, Jew and Gentiles, one and declares peace from his cross. We take up the shield of faith and we quench the flaming darts of the adversary as we know the promises and we pray them and sing them and, and, and love them and meditate on them. We take on the helmet of the hope of our salvation as we realize the hope that is ours that extends beyond the grave, that, that death is not the final word. And we take the sword of the Spirit which beautifies and, and makes the others operative. In the book of Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting the people to, to go strong and, and to enter the eternal rest of God. And he says in chapter 3 that, that, that some people in the Old Testament claimed to be followers of Jehovah, but they were not. And he says and they, they failed to enter that rest. And he says, I plead with you to enter the rest of God that's eternal Chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall 
by the same sort of disobedience as happened and discussed in chapter 3. And you say, well, how do we enter the rest? And when you study the Bible, the Bible answers the questions you ask as you study the text. How do we enter the rest? Verse 12, chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And the word of God pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow. And the word is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So, so if you want to go strong and finish strong and do well, you're people of the book. You take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. <clears throat> the second statement is that, that this passage, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, presupposes, listen, hand-to-hand combat. The Roman soldier's sword was about that long. The passage does not say take the long bow of the Spirit and you stand behind a brick wall and you shoot arrows into the air. It doesn't say for our understanding, take that which is God's weapon and be a sniper. I was doing some research that, that the longest sniper kill recorded is by a Canadian, and it was 1.538 miles. Wow. Over one and a half miles. Boom. It doesn't say the drone of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit. The sword. It presupposes hand-to-hand combat. It presupposes wet and grime and sweat all over your being. It presupposes tasting the dust of the battlefield. You're in continuous combat. It's the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. And the other observation, and it's easy to miss this, is that, that it's pretty basic, but battles were fought in the company of other brothers who were in the company of the committed. It presupposes that you're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder in combat. It presupposes the Roman square that protected one another in the midst of combat. It presupposed brothers and sisters in Christ who are standing next to you. And so with that as the background, how do we receive the Word of God? Here's a book called James New Testament that has a section of how you receive the Scripture, how you live it out. And in James chapter 1, it says that it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, verse 16. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And so the question is, God is gloriously good. How is he gloriously good? Verse 18, the first step in how to handle the word. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own word, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, the gospel. We said that, that's the shorthand for the gospel. He gave us the gospel. So, so if I'm to be a kind of first fruits of people up for his praise, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, if I'm to be that type of person, I've got to ground my life every day in the goodness of the gospel, that my acceptance is in Christ, that what I could not do for myself, God did for me by dying on the cross for my sins, and I live out of that strong reality. The glory of the gospel. 
quick story. First Samuel is about the shepherd king David, who's anointed king. He kills Goliath. And after kills Goliath in a fantastic man-to-man combat, he goes and he makes a, a statement before the reigning king, a man named Saul. Saul had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan was the heir to the throne, but as David laid out what he had done and has responded to the questions, it says this, Jonathan and David's relationship is a beautiful statement about friendship. It says, as soon as David, as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan, the heir apparent, loved him, David, as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. And what he was saying, and he said continuously is, I'm not going to be the king. This man is going to be the king, and I will be his helper. Amazing statement. And Saul became very jealous of David and tried to kill him. And, and Jonathan, time after time, defended his friend before his father as his father grew more and more mad and more and more filled with evil. Until one day, in one of the most horrific passages in the Bible, Saul and all of his boys are killed in combat. And David becomes king. And so David is king for years, and he wipes out his enemies, and he establishes a kingdom. And one day, David says, is there anyone alive who's related to my friend Jonathan to whom I can show kindness? And the chief servant of the dead King Saul stepped forward and said, well, there is one, only one. His name is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was five years of age when his daddy and granddad were killed on the field of combat. And he already had some problems with his limbs and walking. And the nurse picked him up and in fleeing from the melee of the massacre and the oncoming hordes, she dropped him as she fled from the palace. And he was trampled by people and he became a true cripple all of his life. And so the king says, King David says, please bring him to me. And so Mephibosheth comes with great fear before David. He'd been in hiding because he, he could claim the throne. He wasn't going to. And so he thinks, well, now this is the end. And he comes before David. And David says, Mephibosheth, all that your father and your grandfather owned, all their vineyards, all their lands, all their houses, they're yours forever. And Mephibosheth, I want you to sit at my table every day, and I want you to be part of my family. I want to consider you to be a son. And Mephibosheth falls from his crutches to the ground, and he says this, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog like me? And in writing about that, there's a guy named Spurgeon who writes morning and evening. It's just so, it's so good. It's just so good. It's a devotional. But, but Spurgeon says about this, this situation, he says, Mephibosheth, the cripple, was not a great ornament at the king's table. Yet he had a continual place at David's table because the king could see in his face the features of his beloved Jonathan. The Lord sees in our countenance the remembrance of his dearly loved Jesus. The Lord's people are dear for another's sake. 
He doesn't see it in me. He sees the reality of Christ. Listen. Their deformity shall not rob them of their privileges. We're all deformed. But it doesn't rob us of our privileges. Lameness is no bar to sonship. The cripple is as much the heir as if he could run like an Olympic athlete. That's grace. And so, so if I'm to handle the word correctly, I've got to be a person who bases my reality on the glory of the cross. And then he gives a, 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 a brief statement about community. You see, part of the book of James is writing about people who were misusing their speech. Their community was kind of d- d- dissolving. And, and he says in chapter 3, he says, you know, just, just think out loud with me. He says, with the same tongue, we curse man and praise God. He said, get real. He said, come on, get real. He said, can, can fresh water flow from a salt source or vice versa? He says, don't do that. And so he makes this commentary. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Just a brief commentary. He says, you know, the application of all this in your community, be, be quick to listen. Just be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to become angry. For man's anger doesn't bring out the life of God. God, uh, God desires. Martin Luther on this text, and Martin Luther should have been quiet the last five years of his life. He says some horrible things. But anyway, Martin Luther said, in this, we have to look at ourselves, and God has given us two ears and one mouth. We should listen twice as much as we speak. He says, build community. So, so you... You understand the goodness of the cross. You understand the importance of community. And then you live intentionally. So you you live intentionally. Therefore, verse 21, therefore, based upon what has been said, that because of community, because of the glory of the cross, therefore, get rid of the moral filth that is so prevalent and humbly receive the word planted in you that can save or rescue or refurbish your soul. So you live intentionally by doing two things. Number one, you humbly receive the word planted in you. And you see, as I look at this text, if I am busy receiving the planted word, if I'm thinking it, if I'm reading it, if I'm trying to meditate on it, take a little verse and put it on the refrigerator, on the dashboard, and think through it and pray through it, if I'm busy doing that, then sin will be held at arm's length or beyond. If I'm in the word... If I'm thinking it, praying it, singing it, laboring over it, saying, God, by your Holy Spirit, bring it to my life, then then sin does not have the power that it normally would have in my life. That's my experience. So so I I, I humbly receive the word. Are you listen, are you are you humbly receiving the word? Have you read the scripture this week and said, That's me, I gotta change. That's me, I need to do that. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. See, I, I need to humbly, listen, humbly receive the word. And as I do that, I will get rid of the sin that is so prevalent. And it's everywhere. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who's doing something exceedingly sinful and seedy, even by Corinthian standards. You know, Corinth was Las Vegas on steroids. And so in, in Corinth, there was a man, Paul says, there's, there's a man doing something among the church folks, the people who named Jesus. He says, you know, that even the pagans don't do. A man is living with his father's wife, probably his stepmama. 
in open adultery. And he says, and you haven't corrected him. And Paul says, incredulously, don't you realize that a little leaven works its way through the whole batch of dough? You see, when I sin, I hurt me, I hurt my family, I hurt you guys. When I, when I sin and I don't correct it, I hurt me. Sin always stays longer than you want to stay. It always costs, costs more than you wanted to cost. and always takes you a lot further than you wanted to go. You lose the anointing and the joy of the Spirit. You lose the peace of the gospel when you don't repent of your sin. It hurts me. It hurts my family. It hurts the church. There's an instructive little passage in Joshua. Joshua, the children of Israel have gone into the promised land. They've seen this huge impregnable, unbelievably defended city fall named Jericho. Glorious victory. Glorious victory. And God said, don't take anything from inside Jericho. It is to be destroyed. No gold, no silver, no clothes. No, no, don't do that. It's destroyed. And so they're basking in the aftermath of the victory. They said, we need to conquer the rest of the valley. And they said, well, the next place to conquer is a little outpost. It's just kind of a Three or four sheds put together. Very few people. It's called AI. No big deal. And so they sent a reconnaissance patrol up there. They spied out the land. They came back and they said, you know, we could take this city very easily. 2,000, 3,000 people at the most. And so General Joshua sent 3,000 people up the mountain, up the valley to take care of AI. They fought AI. 36 were killed, and the rest of the soldiers ran down the valley screaming for their lives. They came into the camp disheveled, saying, we've been defeated, we've been routed, and the leaders fall before the ark of the Lord, which represented the presence of God, saying, what's going on? What's going on? And God said to them, there's sin in the camp. And they brought in every tribe, every clan, every family. And then the Lord said, it's this man. There's a man named Achan. And Joshua says, Achan, give glory to God. What's going on? And he said, I've sinned. He says, when I saw a beautiful Babylonian robe, and I saw some silver in the ruins of Jericho and some gold in the ruins of Jericho, I took them and I buried them under my tent. See, one man brought defeat to the army. Be careful. When I sin, when you sin, you hurt yourself, you hurt your family, you hurt your church, you hurt the kingdom, you hurt your legacy. See, sin is a horrible, destructive thing. And so if I'm in the Word, I'm living intentionally, I'm getting rid of the evil that is so prevalent as I study, as I pray, as the Holy Spirit speaks, and, and I am simultaneously being built up in the Lord. So, thirdly, as, as I'm in the Lord, I understand the promises of God. He says here, this says this, as you humbly receive it, this is the word that can save you or refurbish you or energize you. And then he gives this incredibly well-known illustration. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom 
will be blessed in what he does. You look at the perfect law of freedom, the law that gives freedom, and you continue in it, not forgetting what you have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed. So you back up and you go, well, the promises here in this little paragraph are that the word can save or refurbish or rescue me. The word is the perfect law that gives freedom, and I want that. The law is I look into it intently and think through it and pray through it. The law is that which blesses my heart and soul. And it builds me up in faith. It makes me strong. So you, you, you glory in the gospel. You live intentionally and you remember the promises. I was thinking about some of these promises. I heard this verse recently. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So, how do you do that? Next verse. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Wow. So, so how does God make our paths straight? Well, we trust in him. How do we show we trust in him? We're not wise in our own eyes. We reverence God and we turn from evil. Reading a book on philosophy recently, and almost any philosopher that's written a book on the history of philosophy says that, that, that Rene Descartes, there was a Cartesian worldview shift with Rene Descartes, who claimed to be a Christian, but Rene Descartes said a very famous phrase. You studied it in Western Civ. He says, I think what? Therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. He could have said, and I'm not trying to be funny, I eat, therefore I am. Or I bathe, therefore I am. What he was saying in his people that followed after him said that, said that really life is only verifiable over that which you can see and touch and taste. I think, therefore I am. I lived, therefore I am. Up to that time, the basic worldview, the basic presupposition is this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his praise. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And so when, when you're not wise in your own eyes, you're not Cartesian, you're biblical. God is and he has spoken. And, and then you reverence him and you turn from evil. And you do that because you've tasted the gospel. You do that because you live intentionally and you know the promises. saw a couple, two people, two young couples that I had the privilege of being involved in their wedding in the last two weeks, three weeks. And I always, I always pray Proverbs 24 for young couples as they get ready for marriage and for old couples like me. Proverbs 24, verse 3 and 4 says this, By, by, by wisdom a house is built. Through understanding, it is established. And through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. I love that. By wisdom, the wisdom of Christ, a house is built. Through understanding, understand each other in light of the Lord. Through understanding, it is established. And through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. I want rare and beautiful treasures in your homes. And it happens as we know and glory in the promises of God.
And that's why there's a little quote in the sermon guide from a man named R.C. Sproul about the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And he says, illumination is not to be confused with revelation. You know, the Bible is God's revelation. He says, it is commonplace today to hear people speak about private revelations they claim to have received from the Holy Spirit. But the work of the Spirit in illumination is not supplying new information or fresh revelations beyond the Scripture. Reformed or conservative evangelical Christianity emphatically denies that God is giving new normative revelation today. The Spirit is still working to illumine what is revealed in Scripture. The Spirit helps us to understand the Bible. The Spirit convicts us of the truth of the Bible and applies that truth to our lives. He works with the Word and through the Word, and His task is never to teach against the Word. It is therefore always necessary to test what we hear by the teaching of Scripture. The Scripture is God's Spirit book. It's the Spirit's book. So when we talk about the power of the Spirit, we're to take the sword of the Spirit the truth under the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And our prayer is, Holy Spirit, by the power that you bring, take the Word of God and make it applicable to my life. Change me. I need to be changed. I, I want to be the person you've, you've called me to be. And then as you go through this text, there's a manifestation of knowing the glory of the gospel, of living with intentionality, and of knowing the promises. And it's found in verses 26 and 27. Three things. Those who consider themselves religious but do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's three things here. Number one is if I, if I am really walking and taking up the Word of God correctly, I, I will keep a tight rein on my tongue. I will give people, people the benefit of the doubt. I will give a good report. I will speak well of people. I won't curse people and the next minute praise God. A manifestation of being filled with the Spirit and knowing Jesus is having a mouth that is gracious. The mouth of the righteous, Proverbs says, is a fountain of life. I love that. And then the second thing he says here is that, is that if I really am taking up the Word and living it right, I have a deep concern for people that cannot protect themselves or cannot do for themselves, whether there's life in the womb or whether it's people that are disenfranchised, whether it's the suffering church around the world, whether it's the, the oppressed people of Sudan, whether it's my neighbor, whether it's people that live in our community, I have a deep concern for them. And he says, especially widows and orphans in their distress. You take care of people. And he says that the third mark is you're, you're not polluted by the world. You're changed by the Spirit, not polluted by the world. And that's why I put this little test in here just to, to think through. And I have some questions. Number one, have I lived out of the joy of being grounded in the gospel of grace? Do I rejoice in the goodness of Christ's work for me on the cross? What I couldn't do for myself, he did for me. Does that make you sink? Secondly, am I receiving the word of God with a meek and teachable spirit? Am I saying, Lord, teach me? Do I open the Bible and say, yeah, that's me. I need to work on that. Or thank you for that, Lord. Three, and list one particular concrete way you've turned from known sin this week. A conversation you walked away from 
or maybe something you said, well, can we change the subject, or maybe an entertainment you didn't go to, or something you've done to keep from being polluted by the pollutants around us. Um, number four, am I intentionally doing the Word by arranging my life under the clear teaching of the Scripture? You step back this week and say, this week I want to do this out of obedience to Christ. Number five, have I used my speech to bless and build others up this week? Is there a sin I need to confess in this area? Number six, have I shown mercy to those in need by, by bringing a meal or writing a letter or making a trip or whatever? And number seven, have I showed a desire to be unstained by the pollutants that exist in this worldly system? It's just so practical. But you see, when you take up the Word of God correctly, see, it makes operative and powerful every other piece of the Christian armor. Be people of the book. Oh, be people of the book. Sing it, think through it, pray it, read it, memorize it. Be people of the book. Thanks be to God for his word. I love 2 Peter 1. It says, everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us in Scripture. Everything we need. Everything we need.